for some reason I'm never quite sure what Halloween is about. (laughs) I can't remember what it dates back to. But I do know one thing. As I look around the room at these amazing pumpkins, what what they represent to me is the great love and devotion that the staff expresses in being here. Tonight, may we sit and bathe in the love and devotion that has helped us to be here during this time and to practice. Tonight I wanted to speak about faith. It's a quality of heart and mind that we don't hear spoken about so much in Buddhist teachings. We think of it as a come-and-see practice, which is what the Buddha expressed. He challenged us to come, to look, to inquire, and to realize for ourselves. And so when we hear the word faith, It may be that we don't think we have faith, we don't understand how it fits into the teachings, and we don't even want to have faith. Yet the Buddha thought that it was important enough that he placed it on the list of the five spiritual faculties. These are the five powers in the mind that need to be strong and dominant in order for awakening to occur. The other faculties are energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And these are all faculties which we have spoken about at different times during this retreat. Faith is the first of these faculties because it has an energizing quality to it. It helps to motivate us. It's the place from which we begin the journey. The beginnings of faith we can look to in our own life and remember back to a time Maybe as a small child, uh, the Buddha discovered meditation sitting under a tree one day when he was young. And it's quite likely many of us did too, that um, there maybe was moments of silence, quietness, where we were at peace, at rest. We maybe didn't have any language for it, didn't know what it was about, and yet these moments spoke to us. When we begin to listen to these moments, they become a motivating force in our lives. Before I go any further, I'd like to speak a little bit about the word faith and how it's used in Buddhist teachings.
because it really can be that due to our past conditioning that we really don't think that we are a person who has any faith. I know I've heard this from Dharma teachers before. Um, And it can be just a way that we hold this word, which may not be what the Buddha was talking about. So tonight, taking a look at some of the aspects of faith that the Buddha was referring to. Literally translated, faith means to place one's heart upon. It's to give our hearts over to something. It's to where it is we find refuge, what it is we can trust in, rely on. In the doing so, there are some qualities that are present. The qualities that faith embraces are the qualities of trust, devotion, confidence, and a clarity of mind that is able to dispel doubt. Trust. We might be coming in contact with the quality of trust in these last few days when we sit in a place of change, impermanence. We know we can't jump forward and control our future. And the past is already gone. Trust helps us to sit in this place. We may have been uncovering trust in our practice we start to trust in the practice. We begin to trust in mindfulness, turning up, being present. We trust in the power of awareness itself. This is a teaching from Hamid Almas, a teacher who lives on the West Coast, who brings together a synthesis of Eastern philosophy and Western psychology. In his teaching about trust, he says, we don't trust that if we relax, we will have the capacities, we will have the intelligence, we will have the strength, and we will have the compassion that we need to deal with our lives. We don't trust that reality, as it is, is fundamentally fine and will work for us and support us without any interference on our part. Basic trust is learning that life is manageable, is workable, that we can relax into it and just let it be. It is that trust that the universe itself supports us, and that we have the inner resources to deal with whatever life presents us. Basic trust means trusting enough to let your mind stop, to be silent within. Trust to let yourself be silent within. Knowing this, 
If there is something you need to know, the knowing will come. It means trusting that if you need to do something, you will be able to do it. It means accepting and trusting the silence, the stillness, the beingness. If we don't trust, we can't let our minds be silent and we can't let ourselves be still. Trust, which allows us to let our minds be silent, be still, allows us to rest in this beingness. allows us to feel the great support that is available to us in this life. Trusting that what we have is enough and what we need is already here. Relaxing into this moment. We get small glimmers of these moments when we rest in this trust, rest in this ease, this peace. Out of these moments we experience the budding of faith, the sense of possibility. These moments are very powerful. They fuel our practice. They keep us going. A while ago, I had uh, an experience that just reflected back to me something of the power of having a faith or trust. It was a period where Edwin, my husband, was going through quite a nostalgic period listening to music, playing a lot of songs from the past. One day he put on uh, a CD by the Moody Blues. And I happened to have listened a lot to the Moody Blues when I was younger. And then there was this line that says, because I know I'm going to find my peace of mind someday. When I heard that line, I just burst into tears. I was flooded by memories of this teenager who had been basically clueless. And yet, (laughs) when I would hear that song back then, I knew it was true. I knew one day I was going to find my own peace of mind. I didn't have a clue how. I didn't have a clue when. I just knew it was a possibility. And, you know, in that reflection, that memory, those memories coming flooding back, It helped me to see how that faith had propelled me, had propelled me through the difficult times, the times of feeling very clueless, and the times of going forth, embarking on the journey. Really, and probably like many of you, traveling afar, traveling to Asia, 
in my youth and just this sense of urgency, this sense of needing to set forth on this journey. And this song just reminded me of that power of faith. So trust being a quality of faith. Devotion is also a quality of faith. And I know many people react to this word, you know, images of, you know, throwing yourself at the feet of a guru and thinking, nope, not this lifetime. Or, um, you know, even being here, watching other people bow to the Buddha. And just the contraction in the heart, it's not where we're at. And so we think we don't have this quality of devotion. There's different ways devotion is experienced. Some of it may be for us, you know, some of us may have this sense of really um, calling forth, invoking the embodiment of Buddha nature. And we might do, do so through bowing or chanting or a sense of prayer. And for other people, that just isn't how we resonate with devotion. Our devotion comes to devoting ourselves to this moment, to this practice, to devoting ourselves to waking up, to devoting ourselves to uncovering the the full potential of being a human being. Devotion is an aspect of faith that does carry within it a lot of energy. Because with devotion, we unify our energy. It's letting uh, the energy we bring to the practice be wholehearted. So it you know, can be expressed through words, our actions, our presence. We bring a totality of our being. Devotion to wakefulness. So trust, devotion, and then confidence is another aspect of faith. And confidence in this context differs than having pride or arrogance, which can be a worldly way that we view confidence. But confidence in relation to faith is that we begin to have confidence in where we place our trust, what we place our hearts upon. During this time here, we have quite likely developed confidence in the practice, in our ability to do the practice. From moments when we've been tangled up in a knot, And we just stayed steady. We stayed present. And we began to see that knot unravel. It starts to give us confidence in mindfulness. In the fact that we can do it. We can turn up for our lives. 
When we have the qualities of trust, devotion, and confidence, there comes a clarity of mind that is able to dispel doubt. We're no longer uncertain about why we do what we do. There's a sense of conviction, rightness, sureness in our doing this practice. Out of this, there comes a willingness to settle into this process. At times, we may have experienced being propelled or pulled with a sense of wanting to be liberated, to be free so strongly. And yet, with confidence or conviction, we just know that we're doing what we do because we have to do it. We have no choice to do it. And we'll just do it the best that we can, for however long it takes, for whatever it takes. We just learn to have that confidence in this journey, the direction of our lives. So the qualities of faith being trust, devotion, confidence, and a clarity of mind that is able to dispel doubt. We can see how faith works by looking back to when we were a small child. Maybe we have memories, maybe we can remember the small children around us. A small child that is not yet walking only able to crawl or sit on their bottom and watch life go by. And as they sit, they begin to look at the world around them, noticing that other people can move around on two feet, two legs. They start to somewhere think, hmm, maybe I can do that too. And then, in that first moment, they take a step, Maybe they take one step, and it works. Ah, the smile of a child as they do this. They take another step, and they tumble. They fall down. It may be that it scares them. They're not able to get up for a while. They're frightened. Or other children might just bound right back, take another step. But what helps them to take that next step is this quality of faith, conviction, that it's possible for them. And this is how it works in our practice. We hear something of the possibility of freedom, liberation. We get a sense of the path, the Noble Eightfold Path. We hear the teachings of the Buddha, and it resonates. We think it's possible for us, and we arrive on the cushion. We sit. Just today, somebody mentioned to me how it seems like often your first retreat is the best retreat you ever had. You know, and, you know it can be that way, that something happens in our uh, beginning days of our practice, and then we're hooked. And then we might find that we've crashed 
it gets really difficult for long periods of time. But that faith, that quality of faith, is what keeps us going in these difficult times. Faith is what gives us the courage and the confidence to move into unknown territory. Just imagine what it would be like if every time we did something in our lives, before we did it, we had to know what the outcome would be. We'd never be able to do anything because we never know. It's always unknown. Sometimes we can think we know but it's just a calculated guess. Each moment is a step into the unknown. When we look at our lives, how much time do we spend trying to make the, cer the future certain, trying to calculate how it will be, instead of relaxing into this quality of faith or trust. For many of us, the word faith is tied in with beliefs, which is another reason that we're not so interested in faith. We think it means to believe in something. Um, believing in a deity. Believing in something other than our own experience. In our lives, we may experience over and over again being bound by our beliefs, being confined by our own belief systems, conceptual way of holding the experience of this life, frameworks that don't serve us, that hinder us and obscure us, obscure us from realizing the truth, the practice becomes one of unveiling these beliefs that bind us. Many times we aren't even aware that we're restricted by this conceptual models that we hold in our minds until we practice, until we hit upon something that's tightening, contracting in the heart. And suddenly we realize it's a belief in the way things are. Our faith has to be deeper than our beliefs. When faith is based upon our beliefs, we set ourselves up for profound disappointment feelings of betrayal when things don't go according to our beliefs. 
we may find that as we do the practice, that even though we're unpeeling one layer of belief, we quickly try and put in another layer. We try and reconstruct the world moment by moment and hold it in these conceptual beliefs. But our practice is really that peeling away of all of these beliefs, finding for ourselves what is trustworthy, what we can rely upon. This is a poem by Michael Lunick, who is an Australian cartoonist, whose poems and uh, cartoons often have a dharmic twist. When the heart is cracked or broken, do not clutch it, let the wound lie open. Let the wind from the good old sea blow in it to bathe the wound with salt and let it sting. Let a stray dog lick it, let a bird lean in the hole and sing a simple song like a tiny bell and let it ring. Not being afraid as we peel away our beliefs, as we hit places of pain, contraction. In these moments, resting in trust, resting in the unfolding of the Dhamma. In Buddhist teachings, there's three stages to faith. The first is that of bright faith. It's where we may come in contact with a person or a teaching, uh, may have read a book that deeply inspires us. And we might feel happy, confident, light in hearing this and we see the arising of faith or the sense of possibility. There's some inner resonance. It's quite a wonderful stage of faith. It It is essential, necessary. It is where we touch into the sense of possibility. It can be a very positive experience. And yet, it can also if it's not uh, followed up with our own inquiry, take us into blind faith, where we would um, just become devoted to someone and appreciating the qualities that we see in them, but not realizing that it's possible for us, too, to embody these qualities. It can happen when we read a lot of books, and the words might inspire us. We might uh, form beliefs around the words that we're hearing. But we only are on the level of the intellectual understanding. And we're not looking to find out for ourselves. We haven't been able to actualize it, embody, or to live the teachings. There's a story about Ajahn Chah. Uh, 
it's said that on one of his first trips to England, he traveled around and visited many Buddhist groups. During one of these evenings, there was a very dignified English lady who had spent many years studying the complex cybernetics of the mind according to the 89 classes of consciousness in the Buddhist Abhidhamma psychology text. And she asked him a question. She asked Ajahn Chah if he would please explain certain of the more difficult aspects of the system of psychology to her so that she could continue her study. Ajahn Chah asked her if she had ever practiced meditation. And she said, no, she was too busy studying the Abhidhamma and didn't have time. Sensing how caught up she was in an intellectual concept rather than benefiting from practice in her own heart, he answered her quite directly. He said, you, madam, are like one who keeps hens in her yard and goes around picking up the chicken droppings instead of the eggs. We do pick up beliefs as we listen to the teachings, but we need to challenge these beliefs so that we're not just left with the droppings. (coughs) What may have been words of wisdom from someone else needs to be realized in our own hearts and minds. When we meet someone who inspires us, remembering that we too can embody these same qualities that we see in another. The Dalai Lama is someone who continues to inspire me year after year. Some years ago, I was uh, fortunate in that I was in New York City at the time when he gave some teachings in Central Park. It was quite an event. It was an event where I was staying at a place maybe a mile away from where the teachings were and walked through Central Park to where the teachings would be given. As I was walking through the park, that, you know, at first there were some people and then uh, the, the crowd grew and thicker and thicker and in the distance you could hear uh, Tibetan monks chanting. And then, you know, suddenly coming over a knoll into the area where the teaching was happening and it was just this sea of people. You know, it was said that there were somewhere between 40,000 and 70,000 people. And as I sat there, surrounded by this great mass of people, it, it took me back to what it must have been like in the time of the Buddha, when people would just gather from all over to hear his teachings. And it just was incredible to sit there. It was so peaceful. The crowd was so at ease. And then he began speaking. And he is a man who addresses what's happening in the moment. And so he spoke about many social issues. He spoke about the gap between the rich and the poor. He spoke about racism. He spoke about animal rights, just to name a few. And he also spoke a lot about conflict. 
and it was conflict between countries. And also conflict between our neighbors, the people who live on the other side of the fence, the people who irritate us in our lives. He talked a lot about this aspect of conflict. As he was speaking about it, he made no mention of the Chinese, the situation between Tibet and China. And yet, as he was speaking about it, I was remembering how difficult at times his own life has been, and that the conflict he was thinking about wasn't some theoretical aspect, but he'd very deeply been involved in conflict. As he was speaking, all of a sudden, he threw his head back, and he came out with that great laugh that he is known for. And he says, and still I am happy. In that moment, there was no doubt in my mind that he was. And it was the seeing that when we're deeply happy, our happiness is nothing that anyone has the power to take away from us. And seeing that in him made me reflect on how this was possible for me too. Of course, this won't happen if we don't practice, if we don't pay attention, if we don't use the circumstances of our lives in the way that the Dalai Lama has. This is where faith acts as a bridge into the understanding of the teachings. We start to do the practice. We start to deeply and intimately work with our own hearts and minds. The circumstances of our lives, letting this be the place that we realize truth. Now, six weeks later, as we've been sitting here doing the practice, we can arrive at the second stage of faith. First stage being bright faith, the second stage being verified faith. That's where we've heard some aspect of the teachings, we've applied our attention, mindfulness, and we come to see something of these teachings for ourselves. It's where our confidence begins to grow. Sometimes it is just a glimmer, but it inspires us. We, and you know, we see, okay, if this is true, then maybe the rest of the teachings are also true. And so we want to know. We were, it, it becomes a really energized state of faith. 
because we have some verification for ourselves. This is where our faith starts to become balanced by wisdom. Wisdom that is born of our own investigation and our own intuitive knowing. And this keeps us motivated on our journey until we reach the third stage, which is unshakable faith, unwavering faith. This is where we have uprooted doubt in the form of doubt about our practice, doubt about the teachings, doubt about our ability to do the practice. It's where we have that confidence in what it is we place our hearts upon. It's powerful to meet someone who has this quality of unshakable faith. I remember when I was practicing with Sayadaw Ujjanaka and every day going into him and reporting, reporting my meditation experiences, which I judged to be um, not so good. I felt floundering. And each day he met this with an expression of faith. You know, and it kind of puzzled me. It was, you know, the sense of he had more faith in my practice than I did. And then one day I realized it wasn't me, Miosian, that he had faith in, but he had faith in the Dhamma. He had faith in the, the truth. He had faith in this practice. He had faith that anybody who came to do this practice and really applied themselves to this practice, it's as if they would realize the truth. It was as if it's inevitable. And this he had complete faith in. He's been such an icon of faith for me. A couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to practice in the West with him. And I was just dumbfounded to go and to practice and to just come in, t- in contact with this kind of unfathomable sense of faith just being in his presence. And that's where sometimes our own faith may waver. We were not so sure. And this is where our teachers' teachings can help to inspire us. Finding that strength in these moments of doubt. I had a wonderful teaching uh, around doubt and faith. A number of years ago, it was right after I had begun to teach. And uh, it was a time when I went to uh, Europe. I first went to Sweden, and then I went to Russia. I was teaching with Joseph. When I went to Russia, I gave what even Joseph thinks is one of the worst talks ever. Joseph is a kind and caring person, so (laughs) when he says something like this, he says it in a kind and caring way, but anyhow. (laughs) What happened was, you know, I was really new to giving Dharma talks. They were a mystery in themselves. 
And I was also working with a translator. In the, the, the first night that I gave a talk, I had no idea about working with a translator. And so, you know, I would either give him too little information and he didn't know what I meant, or I'd give him so much information his head was spinning. And then he was also quite tired that evening. And periodically, he w- I would say something and he'd turn to me and he'd say, Are you sure about that? <laughs> I was just mortified. <laughs> It was all I could do to finish that talk. And so, I, you know, I just barely made it to the end of that talk. And then, you know, it was a couple of days before I gave my next talk. Joseph, being the wonderful being that he is, gave me some hints on working with my translator. <laughs> and, and, but, you know, I was just hit that place of total doubt in myself and was terrified at the idea of giving the next talk. And in fact, I would go to work on my next talk and I would just start sobbing. (laughs) But the talk was about faith. And it was just amazing to watch the process, to watch, you know, in those moments of doubt, the impact of turning the attention towards that which inspires us. That which, you know, even though it seems quite distant in that moment, is like, yes, there's that glimmer of possibility. And there's vast teachings that we can rely on. There's vast places of inspiration. So just knowing wherever we find ourselves in the world, we can look to that which helps to inspire us when we start quivering in doubt. And doubt will arise until our faith becomes unshakable. So don't be daunted by it. It's a part of the practice. Remembering it's a function of the practice to shake us out of our complacency, to shake us until we find that which is unshakable. Not being afraid of that quivering, that trembling of the doubting mind, but rising up in the face of it. If we can, drawing on that trust in ourselves or turning our attention to that in this world that we can rely on, which inspires us. I really wanted to share tonight a story I know some of you have heard before, but it's one of my favorite stories that is, to me, about faith. And it's from uh, a book called Frog and Toad Together by Arnold Lobo. This is called The Garden. One day, Toad was visiting Frog, and Frog said, Toad, I've got something to show you. Come to the back of my house. So Toad went with Frog to the back of the house, and there was a beautiful garden with lovely rows of flowers of all colors and delicate perfumes. 
Toad looked at the garden and said, Oh, what a beautiful garden you have, Frog. I wish I had a garden like that. Frog responded, You can have a garden like this. I have some more flower seeds. If you cultivate the ground and plant them, then you can have a garden, but it will take a lot of hard work. How soon will I have a garden? said Toad. Quite soon, replied Frog. So Toad was very excited. He took the seeds and he rushed back to his house. And he dug up the ground and he cultivated it. And he moistened it with the hose. And then he planted his seeds in little rows. And then he sat down and looked at the seeds. Toad sat and looked at his seeds. And after a few minutes, nothing happened. So Toad leaned over towards the seeds and he whispered, Seeds grow. He walked up and down a few times, and the seeds did not grow. So Toad waited a little bit longer, put his ear to the ground, and then spoke a little bit more loudly. Now seeds start growing. And still, nothing happened. So Toad took a deep breath, and he yelled, Seeds grow! Just then, Frog came running down the path to Toad's house. What's going on? What's all the noise about, said Frog. And Toad replied, Oh, I was just telling the seeds to grow. And Frog looked at Toad and said, Toad, you shouldn't shout at your seeds. They can't grow because they're too frightened. You're shouting at them. My seeds are frightened, said Toad. Why, I didn't know you could frighten seeds. Of course, said Frog. You should leave them alone for a few days. Let the sun shine on them. Let the rain fall on them, and then your seeds will start to grow. So, for all the rest of the day, Toad sang songs to his seeds, and he wished that they would not be frightened. All through the night, he read stories to his seeds with a candle, so they would not be afraid of the dark. All of the next day, he sang songs for them, and the next day he read poems to them. The following night, he danced with them, so they would not be lonely, and still nothing happened. Toad looked at his seeds and he said, These must be the most frightened seeds ever. I'm exhausted. So he lay down beside the seeds and he went to sleep. And during the night the rain fell, and in the morning the sun shone upon the garden. But Toad was so exhausted that he just continued to sleep. And soon Frog came along yelling, Toad, Toad, wake up. Toad woke up and he looked with bewilderment at Frog. And then Frog said, Look, look. Then as Toad looked at his garden, he saw tiny green shoots peeking through the soil. Now you too will have a lovely garden, said Frog. And Toad replied, Yes, but you were right. It was a lot of hard work. How often do we look at the seeds of our practice and tug at them, pull at them? This story pointing towards another way. Patience, acceptance, the seeds growing in their own time.
The image of a flower has often been helpful to me, to remember the flower that was once a little seed, and then it burst forth, became a tiny little seedling, and it grew, got taller, leaves appeared, and then finally one day it blossomed into a beautiful flower. We have a tendency to want to always be that beautiful flower and not remembering that it takes the whole process to blossom, to flower, and that each step of this process has its own beauty. So faith, having the qualities of trust, confidence, devotion, a clarity of mind that is able to dispel doubt. We cultivate faith as we do this practice. It's a way that we nourish these seeds. beginning with bright faith, coming into verified faith, until we find the unshakable faith. I'd like to share a story that was a time of great challenge for myself. A time of learning more about the quality of faith, of trust. It happened uh, on uh, the last time that I went to Burma. I had decided to go to Burma. I may have spoken a little bit about going to Burma and ordaining as a nun uh, about three or four years ago. Uh, Something that was really important in my own life to temporarily ordain to live the life of a nun, to live a life of renunciation, simplicity. And for myself, it proved to be a great challenge as I, during that time, traveled to Sagaing Hills, a beautiful area in Burma uh, where a lot of monastic people and not many people who spoke English, and I had wanted to go and live in a nunnery, to live amongst nuns, to really feel the life of a nun. And so, you know, a deeply challenging time, because there there was many uh, things that were not so easy. Um, Not so easy in that there wasn't a support in the way that we have support here in doing practice. I was in a learning nunnery, and people were chanting all day in Burmese and Pali, and, you know, I had no idea what they were doing. Um, uh, Struggling with sometimes the food, not agreeing with me, the bugs, feeling alienated, 
uh, because they took such good care of me, it had uh, a way of putting me separate from those around me. It, um, you know, and it was through the generosity of their heart, but it created a sense of separation, loneliness, and to hear people interacting all day and to not be a part of that was quite painful. Was a couple of months of a lot of doubt, no, a lot of doubt in my own ability to do the practice. Oh, having to just stay steady and coming back over and over again. Um, feeling deeply challenged. And, you know, at times questioning, what was I doing there? You know, I could have stayed home and done a silent retreat, or I could have continued to practice with Sayada Ujanaka and had the same kind of support that we have here. And yet I had this funny notion in my head that I needed to be a nun where there was nobody else who spoke English as a great teaching for myself, convinced that this was a part of what was going to liberate me. Um, So, you know, at the end of my period of time, I was very confused. And it may be just as some of you are sitting here tonight, if you've had a really difficult treat. You know, you sit there and you wonder, what's this about? You know, so I found myself sitting in that airport in Rangoon at the end of my time. And I was just sitting there reflecting on the time, trying to figure out what's this about? What, you know, why did I have to do this? What's the meaning in it? What's the prize I'm going to take home with me? And there just wasn't the prize that was evident. And it was painful, you know, it's like, I remember going, why did I have to do this? And there was a contraction in the heart with it. It was really painful. And then as I was sitting there, uh, I, I looked up and there was this big, huge video screen. And on this video screen was playing MTV. And there was a video clip by Sarah McLaughlin. And when I listened to a line in the song, what I heard was, living in the mystery. And when I heard that line, it was as if my heart cracked. My needing to know what this about was about. My needing to have things worked out. And it l- allowed me to trust. To, it allowed me to sit in the place of mystery with an open heart, to sit with awe and wonder in this great unfolding of life. And when we can sit in this place of not knowing, this is the place that the Dhamma reveals itself, where we experience the grace of the Dhamma. Having the capacity to sit when we're not sure, when we're uncertain, to relax and to trust. 
This is by Rainier Roque. I would like to beg you to have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and to try to love the questions themselves as if they were the locked rooms or books written in a very foreign language. Don't search for the answers which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday far in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. So let's just sit for a moment. Continuing on in our practice until we find that which is unshakable. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.